Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 6. I mean, I think we know some things. We know that funding matters. We know that highly qualified teachers make a difference. We know, we know that students of color do better when they're taught by teachers of color. We know that smaller class sizes make a difference. So it's not like we don't know some things that we haven't gotten good at at systems that deliver those things. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators. Oh, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, It's not going to be one of those super applicable shows. It's more of a food for thought episode. I sit down with Dr. Maya Kachera, who has done some great research on urban education and issues surrounding race and socioeconomic status, which can be difficult conversations to have. You know, it's almost taboo to discuss things like race in class and how there's still an, an opportunity and, and prosperity and education gap in our country because we know it shouldn't be that way. You know, I, I grew up in a, a desegregated country and it's not uh, something that I ever experienced, but in reality and historically speaking, we are not that far removed from a segregated society and sometimes I forget that. And while we have come a long way, there are still some lingering systemic issues that really need to be addressed, especially when it comes to opportunity and accessibility for students in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods who are going to schools that are significantly underfunded. And we can't do anything by not talking about it. So that's why we have this conversation today. And as always, you can find everything that we talk about on our show notes page. You can find those by going to jabbedu.com slash show six. That is J-A-B-B-E-D-U.com slash show six. And before we get into our interview, I actually have some exciting news that I wanted to share with you. We have created a Jabadoo Community Facebook group. So this is where I will get to interact directly with listeners of the show. Uh, We post some great resources that I come upon in my research, um, some other resources that just will be helpful for your classroom. Uh, I get to ask questions, and overall, it's just where you will have the opportunity to influence the direction of this show. So a link to that group will be in our show notes page, or you can find us by going directly to facebook.com slash groups slash jabadoo. So I hope you will come check us out. And with that, now let's get into our conversation with Dr. Maya Kachera. Dr. Maya Kachera, welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for giving me the thumbs up. Let let me know that I said your name right. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we've been we've been back and forth a few times. I'm glad we're able to make this uh, make this time work. And uh, let's just get get right into it. So. Tell us, who was Maya, <laughs> Maya Kachera, the student? Uh, what were some of your interests, some of your hobbies, and what was your experience of school coming through? Sure. Um, so I grew up right outside of D.C., and I went to um, high school in Montgomery County, which is an affluent suburb, um, as I said, right outside of D.C. I went to a large, comprehensive public, public school system and very traditional um, 
heavily tracked, um, of, you know, tracking and ability grouping was a big part of my educational experience. Um, so my high school was huge, was, was big. And, um, I found it, I was always a student who, if I was interested, I would work really hard and do well. And if I wasn't interested, I really didn't, um, you know, which is not necessarily the best trait. It's an okay trait for an academic, but it's not a great trait, you know, for a student in a highly competitive high school. But I found some courses that the classes I was really interested in, and then I would do well in those. So I remember when I was thinking about going to colleges, the college counselor said I was a classic underachiever. Um, I had higher SAT scores than my grades suggested. So I was kind of a mediocre student, I think. Um, and then I went to Carleton College, which is a small liberal arts college in the Midwest. And okay. I loved it and sort of found my passion. I t did a lot of, um, I was a history major. I focused particularly on women's history, kind of okay. social, cultural history. I loved that. And I got to choose the classes that I took. So I worked hard at everything. Um, and I really felt sort of an intellectual awakening in college, um, particularly around like, the understanding that history was different than the history I'd been taught in high school so that you could, you know, study history from the perspective of women, from the perspective of people of color, mm -hmm. from the, you know, thinking about social changes and kind of material culture and all these other things that feel so real in, in our lives, but don't often get reflected in like, you know, the textbook you have in 11th yeah. So Certainly. I just remember feeling like electrified by the study, uh, by this, my studies in college. Um, that's a, that's a fantastic yeah. perspective too, because, um, you know, I, I had a, a history teacher tell me one time when uh, we were, I think we were studying the civil war in, in the United States and we were learning it from the his, the perspective of a Northern state. You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so we learned it as the civil war and apparently I'd, I had no idea, but there's still some Southern states that teach it as the war of Northern aggression. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's that perspective. Yeah. It completely changes the way that you view history. So it's a, it's an important uh, reflection to have a great little side note. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So coming out of, of college, did you go right into graduate school or did you take some time off? No, after college, I, I've always had a strong commitment to service and social justice issues. So after college, I joined VISTA which doesn't really exist anymore, um, but it was at the time the Domestic Peace Corps. Okay. And now it's sort of been folded into AmeriCorps. Um, and I went to rural Louisiana and did adult literacy work. And I ended up getting very involved in a low-income housing development, um, doing after-school programming with kids and got ultimately hired by the housing authority to do their kind of community um, work. I did that and then I moved to New Orleans and did more kind of poverty and education work. And I really couldn't decide if I wanted to be a lawyer or a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a funny note. Um, so a family friend of ours was a columnist for the Washington Post for years and years. His okay. name is Coleman McCarthy. And he, came, he was in Louisiana visiting, giving a speech for the Trial Lawyers Association. He was like a, a big lefty kind of, radical pacifist, wonderful okay. talk. Um, and he was giving a speech in New Orleans and he came down to visit me at the, where I was working in Houma, Louisiana. And, um, and I was telling him that I couldn't decide if I wanted to be a teacher or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. 
my father was a lawyer, my stepfather was a lawyer. I always sort of thought I would do that, but then I wasn't yeah. sure maybe I wanted to do it. So <laughs> a little he bit had of pressure there from the family too. <laughs> and they always said, you know, I was good at arguing, so I should be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> so he ended up writing a column called Letter to Mine um, about that decision, about, hmm. being, you know, if you're interested in social change, do you go into education or the law? And my parents had no idea it was coming. So they're just reading the paper, you know, the Washington Post mm. one day, and they see this letter to Maya um, that shows up. So oh, cool little story. Yeah, yeah it's pretty, it was pretty good. So anyway, I ultimately, after spending some time working in a pro bono, le bono legal organization, decided that I did not want to go. Okay. To <laughs> um, and so then I went and got my master's in education at Columbia Teachers College, taught for a couple years, just three years, and then went back to get my PhD because I think I'm a, in my heart, I'm someone who just is always wanting to keep learning. Yeah, so that, I, that's not uncommon amongst educators, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I just felt, um, I think really good teachers are interested in how students learn, like what goes on in their brains. I never was that interested in that. I was interested in like, like society and culture and policy mm -hmm. and inequality. So that's what I went to study in graduate school. Okay, there you go. And now you, you've been at uh, Temple for a few years now. Yeah, um, but coming out of, uh, out of your uh, PhD, your um, research that you did uh, as your PhD, you were able to turn into a book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that is Marketing Schools, Marketing Cities. And it's a really, um, I didn't get a chance to read it, but it, it, the, the research that went into this is, is fairly unique um, because it it's focuses on uh, Philadelphia and, and one of the initiatives of the city of Philadelphia. So can you just uh, talk us through that? Um, what was some of the research that you did? What were some of the outcomes that you found? And how, how did it uh, relate to the world of education for that city? Sure. Um, so you should definitely read the book. You should buy it and give it to all your friends. There you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so let's see. I started out doing research on something else in a school in Philadelphia. I've, I've always been interested in families and schools. So I started out studying parent organizations um, in the school that I call Grant. But when I was in there, I became increasingly interested in the conversation that was happening within the school and ultimately within the city about the need to get more middle-class families to use urban public schools. So like many cities, Philadelphia over the past 40 years um, lost a lot of middle-class families and a lot of white families to the suburbs, right? And because of what, because the ways that the federal government um, essentially subsidized the move of white middle-class families to the suburbs. So mm -hmm. Philadelphia, um, Philadelphia public schools over the past 40 years became increasingly um, institutions that serve low-income families of color. And there just weren't very many white, white families mm -hmm. and middle-class families, because of course you can't, um, they're not the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there weren't very many families um, that fell into either of those categories sending their kids to the public schools. Most people would, um, who had options in Philadelphia would either use um, private school, uh, um, Catholic school, or move to the suburbs. The school, the public schools were seen as sort of the institutions of last resort. Yeah. But at the time, there was a sort of, there was a small group of schools in the center city area, which is, which is more affluent, um, that middle-class families did use. 
And so there was a, when I was at the school doing my research, I was at one of these schools and there was kind of a core group of middle, really upper middle-class mothers who were trying to market the school to other upper middle-class families with the, with the um, assumption that if they could get more middle-class folks to send their kids to the school, that the school would get better. And, mm. and that was this marketing campaign. And at the same time, an organization called the Center City District, which was a business organization in Center City, um, embarked on a kind of larger effort to do the same thing and ended up partnering with the school district and getting state funds and funds from other sources to do a marketing campaign to get middle-class families to use um, the public schools in Center City, Philadelphia. So the study was looking at how this kind of marketing of a school to a certain kind of person, how that played out within one school. So I went to the school all the time and I was went to the parent association meetings, how it got talked about um, in the larger kind of civic sector. So did people think this is a good idea? Did they think it was a bad idea? Were people worried about you know, the equity implications because it involved um, additional resources to middle to schools that were already pretty advantaged. Um, so like what were the politics yeah. around that? And then I tracked the impact on particularly looking at the demographics of the schools. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think probably one of the challenges that uh, is not unique to Philadelphia, but you're, you've got the center city, which is the more effluent, that's the business district. Um, and as you move out, it increasingly the socioeconomic status goes down as you get further away but then at some point you start to hit those suburbs and it starts to to go back up so the the partnership between these uh private entities and the the public schools was hyper focused in that higher socioeconomic area right right so there was the assumption that and this is the way they kind of sold this thing as being good for all philadelphians the assumption was that the revitalization of center city, meaning mm -hmm. that in the past, maybe 20 years before they started the schools, the focus on schools, um, center city had seen an increase in restaurants and businesses and kind of had become increasingly vibrant as sort of a place that was attracting, um, you know, they talked about knowledge workers, so highly educated, professionals would come and live in Center City and shop in Center City and sure. you know, go to restaurants in Center City. And so the idea was that this was kind of, this revitalization of Center City was ultimately benefiting the schools, the, the city as a whole, because those folks and those businesses pay taxes. And yeah. so if they could get Center City to be even more attractive, then it would be beneficial to the city as a whole, you know, even more beneficial. And the other sure. piece was that the head of this would always talk about that you could get kind of young knowledge workers or professionals to come and live in the city, but when their children turned five, they would want to leave because they didn't want to use the Philadelphia public schools. So yeah. if we could keep them in the city, we'd keep their tax money in the city. And the best way to do that was by kind of doubling down on this already pretty um, vital neighborhood. Yeah, sure. And the challenge then also is, like you said, that the taxes are based on uh, 
property and income, right? So right. lower socioeconomics aren't going to be charged as many taxes, which means less funding is going to those schools, right? Well, but it's a district, right? So you get a lot of people, you know, if you increase Philadelphia's tax base, theoretically, if you only increased it in one area, they would still go into the pot. Now, they're equity issues because, you know, more affluent parents tend to do things that focus on their own kids' schools. But theoretically, the, you know, the, this would be the rising tide kind of thing. Sure. And what was the outcome? So the outcome was, um, well, there are multiple because it, I did it on multiple levels. Within the school, I found that there was, um, that middle-class parents were able to bring a lot of resources to the school. Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to get the school more attention. They were able to hold educators at the school accountable for things like even things as small as, you know, making sure that the um, sidewalks were plow were um, shoveled mm -hmm. when there was snow, um, making sure that the parking lot was safe for, you know, uh, at the beginning and end of the school day. Um, and they were able to get a new playground built. They got a cool new library um, put in. Mm -hmm. So they did a lot of stuff. They were very good at fundraising and at you know knowing you know sure. who to talk to. I also found though that their kind of discourse around like we need this kind of person, we need the middle class people, um, was really marginalizing to folks who didn't fit into that category. So sure. there's been research on kind of the middle class interest in urban public schools. Philadelphia is mm -hmm. not the only place where you've seen people who like are kind of into city life and they want to be a part of yeah. the public system where they're staying and, you know, sending their kids to public schools. But most of the kind of conversation about that has been very sort of celebratory, like, look at these great middle-class moms mm -hmm. who are, you know, changing things. And one of the things that I did differently was I interviewed, I did interview the middle-class moms, but I also interviewed the um, working class mothers who were mm -hmm. also involved in the school and had a lot to say and you know tried to understand how they experienced it and you know they found it they found it um alienating sometimes sure. insulting you know this assumption that only one kind of family was beneficial so that's one impact um mm. kind of more resources but new patterns of kind of marginalization within the school then um more broadly um the campaign made these schools so popular that kids who didn't live in the neighborhoods who used to be able to come into the schools like as a way so let me back up before if you lived in say north philadelphia okay and you and your school was terrible right your neighborhood mm -hmm. school in north philadelphia was terrible and you wanted your kid to go to a different school you could transfer the student into one of these center city schools and because there weren't that many families living in center city and many families who did live there used private schools there were often spots so you okay. could get your kid into one of the public schools right okay. and your parents learned how to work the system sure um and what happened with this initiative is that the schools became more popular with neighborhood folks and so with set with center city folks so there just weren't spots so you gotcha. saw a change in racial demographics you saw a change in um what percent of students are eligible for free or reduced price lunch? So there were there were ways that things that the schools just became um, they started to look more like Center City and less like the rest of Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and 
people who lived outside of Center City lost a really important um, kind of escape. option. Yeah, yeah. So it's so the, with research on gentrification, they talk about displacement. Um, and what I didn't see that, you know, kids who were there in third grade were told don't come back in fourth grade. Sure. But I did, but there's this term exclusionary displacement, which means they never got the chance to come at all. And that okay. is definitely what I saw over time. And now the schools are very popular and they're just not taking anyone. Yeah. I mean, and it, it what was supposed to be something very good and very helpful is kind of like you said, like you said, just becomes slightly isolating to the, the rest of the city in a way, right? I think it's just really complicated. I mean, I think it, you know, there's no, what, even the term of what is good, it's like, who are you talking about? Who gets to decide what's good? So if you're someone who, you know, is committed to public schools and you're middle class and you live in or upper middle class and you live in center city and you want to invest in your kid's public school and you believe, you know, you want to help improve the district, then it's good because there's more of you and you will make a stink when there's a budget cut. You will, you know, make sure that, I don't know, the school is, you know, you'll, when there's asbestos in the school, you will make sure the district mm -hmm. knows about it. Um, so, and that's good, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you, you start to have a kind of two-tiered public school system. The, the schools where there are parents who are empowered, getting more resources, getting more attention, and the rest of the schools that really get left behind. So if you're, so it just depends on whose perspective you're taking. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing is sometimes we we think that there's one thing that we can do, and in reality, like yeah, I I was thinking while you were saying they were shoveling snow. That's such a a small thing in the terms of like what happens in the world of a school building. But to make sure that the sidewalks are clear, it's such a small thing, but it's so important, and right. it's hard to quantify that and say these are the ten things that made this school uh, excel, right? You, it's almost impossible to pinpoint that. So, um, you had also written an article, uh, about, uh, charter schools and how charter schools have, have popped up a good bit, um, over the last what was it, 20, 30 years or so. Is, is that a, a response to, um, the, the struggling of these urban schools? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You don't see charter schools in affluent suburbs because in those areas, the schools, are doing what they are doing well because they have resources. Um, so yeah, charter schools are absolutely a response to dysfunction in urban schools. And I think that there's a sense that the dysfunction in urban schools isn't just due to lack of resources, that it's also due to the systems that have developed over time that make it hard for educators in urban schools to respond appropriately or to be- Certainly. Yeah, or even just to feel valued, you know. I think that's that's part of it too. Because um, I I found a, a statistic. Where is it? Um, urban teachers are paid twenty two percent less than yeah. the national average, which um is hard to keep people in in those schools when that when that's the case. When they can go get the same same job in a neighboring district for, you know, a couple thousand dollars more a year. Yeah, and not just with more salary, but with better working conditions. So buildings that aren't falling apart, um, curricular materials that aren't out of date, you know, copy machines that work, all those things. All those things. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it is rather systemic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
talk what's the response <laughs> you know yeah i you mean like how do we fix if it? we knew if we knew it wouldn't be an issue i guess but i mean i think um, we know some things we know that funding matters there's mm -hmm. evidence that looks over time that shows that especially for the poorest kids more money invested in every year of their education makes a big difference um we know that highly qualified teachers make a difference we know we know that students of color do better when they're taught by teachers of color, um, mm. that that's significant. We know that smaller class sizes make a difference. So it's not like we don't know some things sure. that we haven't gotten good at, at systems that deliver those things. Mm. Um, we, know, we know integration is better, both by race and by class. It's incontrovertible that desegregated schools do better by everyone than, than segregated schools, but we have not figured out a way to make that happen um, on a wide scale. Hmm. And, <laughs> and I mean, that my next question was, where do we start as teachers? <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, I think it's just, it's... I think teachers need to organize. There's been some really effective teacher organizing around, you know, working conditions, class size. I think that stuff can be really powerful um i think it's a lot of this is political it's you know do we have the political will to put the resources where they need to be um i'm, I'm not sure how much an individual teacher in a classroom can do to sure. address larger issues except you know take care of themselves so they stay in the classroom you know one of the things is people leave the classroom so much leave teaching especially in urban areas at such high rates and they often leave just when they're getting really good yeah I was at a conference and and the presenter was a teacher who was maybe 20 years into his teaching experience, but he had just recently shifted to a new position because his wife had gotten a new job. So they moved and he was in his second year in this new job. And he's like, I feel like I'm a first year teacher again. Like everything is new. I don't have the systems in place. So it takes three, four, five years before you start to feel, you know, yeah. capable. <laughs> And I mean, there's if you if you believe you know test score data, there's evidence that for the first couple of years teachers aren't adding that much value. But then you start to see around year three, you start to see real learning happening for their students. So, God, if we have people staying in the staying in teaching for five years and then fleeing, that is a big huge waste. Sure, I mean not just for I mean turnaround costs for districts is is expensive too. Yeah, along those lines, um, it, again in my in my research, I I pulled up um, where is it nine or sixteen percent of uh, people leaving a position is due to retirement. The rest of it is either leaving the profession or switching to a new job. And when I heard that, I that that boggled me. Yeah. Look at um, Susan Moore Johnson's work on working okay. conditions and teacher retention. She's in, at Harvard. I think her work on that is really, really good. And it actually tries to pin down like what it is that makes teachers unhappy with their work and makes them leave. Yeah, that would be a, a great just information to get to. You know, it's it's so hard to explain to new teachers coming out of, of college what you're going to experience your first year. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you gotta, you gotta live through it, you know? Um, but yeah, uh, I'll, I'll have to check out that resource and um, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes uh, on this episode oh, as well. Awesome. And yeah, Susan Moore Johnson. She's done, I think it's called the next generation of teachers or something like that. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, we'll definitely we'll definitely uh, go find that and, and make sure that those are available to you. Um, shifting just a little bit, some of your more recent research and some of your more recent work is uh, partnering with parents mm-hmm. um, and and really teaching uh, parents and the it's the parent and school relationship, right? Um, it's par- uh, the work that I've done more recently is on parenting education, so programs to teach low income parents like parenting skills. Okay. So it's not about, um, often these parents don't have kids in school yet. It's like moms of gotcha. younger kids. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Those are often done though at school. Is that kind of where you're? Sometimes some of them were at school. So I got interested in it because when I was doing my work for the book, I was really struck by this kind of discourse that said, you know, Philadelphia will be saved if we can keep if we can stop middle-class flight and keep middle-class people in the city and that would be good for the city. And if we can get them to use our public schools, that would be good to the, for the schools and the ways in which this kind of discourse about the special virtues, I call it like the, the virtues of the middle-class, um, the ways in which that discourse kind of, I think served to distract from the real structural problems, right? So. Like, okay, maybe we don't need to fund our schools if we can just get a lot of middle-class people to volunteer. Gotcha. Maybe we don't need to deal with the fact that so many people in Philadelphia are really poor if we can just get enough other people to come in with resources, right? So this way Mm. in which, like, the middle-class got positioned as sort of the saviors. Mm. So I was really interested in that. And and then um, I started reading about parenting classes and the ways in which these programs for poor mothers in particular were designed to make them look in some ways more like middle-class mothers. So we know the literature shows that, you know, there are educational benefits to kids if parents talk to them a lot, Mm -hmm. um, if parents read to them, if parents don't let them watch TV. Um, There's educational benefits um, and kind of other benefits if parents don't hit their kids. all of those things tend to be more highly um, associated with middle-class parents, right? So you see there's a ton of research on class differences in parenting. Mm -hmm. And so these programs are often trying to get the lower class parents to do what the middle-class parents do. They're not always that explicit about it, but that's sort of most of the practices that they promote are practices followed by middle-class families. And that's not an accident. It's, it's, there's a variety of reasons, right? It has to do with resources. It has to do with how much time you have to read parenting books. You know, mm. it has to do with all sorts of things, parents' level of education. Um, so I was interested in how poor mothers experience this. And okay. I was taking it just as with my book, I was taking a slightly critical perspective saying like, you know, to what extent are we thinking that if we can change poor parents, that that can help us solve the problem of poverty, right? Hmm. Um, is it is the problem with poverty that people aren't parenting right, or is the problem that people are poor? I think the problem is that people are poor. Sure. So that's the yeah. kind of research that I've done. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating, and um, I'm not sure if if you have plans to follow follow through on on the, the children then and, and what their school experiences, but um, it would be an interesting, yeah. interesting pers- perspective and, and yeah. comparison uh, in that regards too. So, 
Very cool. Yeah. Fun, fun little tangent there. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Do you have anything else that we didn't get to cover that you just wanted to touch on quickly? So who's your audience for the podcast? It's mostly teachers. Teachers. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you um, yeah. You know, God, I hope, I hope that one of the things I've been thinking about a lot with COVID is the, is what changes will happen in our society as a sure. result. And if one of the changes is that teachers get the appreciation and respect and pay that they deserve, then, you know, that would be good. <laughs> I, I, w- I won't complain to that either. <laughs> well, this is, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, let's then move on to our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask every guest as we come on. Um, And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation for teachers? It doesn't necessarily need to be um, along your line of research. It could be your book if you would like it to. (laughs) And that's a given. Um, Of course. I think think there's a book um, called Closing the Opportunity Gap. happens to be right here. It's an extended volume. What America must do to give every child a chance, Mm. an even chance. And it's basically saying that our discourse around the achievement gap, um, the ways in which, you know, our education policy and practice is so focused on the achievement gap is missing the point that it's really not about achievement. It's really about opportunity. Mm. And so it's taking um, each chapter is kind of different ways that the opportunity gap is created. Um, and or and then how we can how we can address those things okay so you know there's a chapter on standards there's this chapter on tracking um on teacher training school resources that kind of stuff segregation anyway i assign it a lot i think it's great okay cool and again we'll link link all of that in our show notes uh what um would be a resource that you would suggest doesn't necessarily need to be a uh, online or hard copy resource just something you say you know what teachers should probably go check this out um oh my god i'm completely drawing a blank i mean phi delta kappa or phi delta happen the i think that's got really great stuff for teachers um you know i could think about research I'll tell you what, if you, if you think about something uh, in the next few days, you want to shoot it over to me, uh, I can include that in the show notes as well. Okay. Uh, what would be one piece of advice you want to give to teachers, especially maybe teachers who are fresh out of college and are starting their careers? I think the biggest advice I would give is find your people um, in the hmm. school that you're in. Teaching can be very isolating and teachers as individuals often, um, get kind of buffeted around. Um, so finding your people, the teachers whose work you value, whose work you admire, people who share your views about what counts as good teaching, about how we should interact with students, like really, really cultivate those relationships. And it can be people you enjoy, um, you know, people you connect with sort of on an interpersonal level, but also mm-hmm. try to find those teachers who you think are doing really good work and try to learn from them because um that's the way we stay in the field yeah it's, it's definitely those those personal connections yeah. and um anytime you can make work more enjoyable to go to <laughs> is obviously yeah. going to keep you there but also it's it's about learning from people so who's doing it really well that you can learn from i mean we can we're all we're all always learning and 
one of the bad things about teaching is you're sort of supposed to know how to do it from day one. Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to have these like professional development sessions when that's like, okay, this is now learning time. But in fact, learning should be happening all the time. And the more you can make those um, opportunities for yourself, the better. Yeah. And um, I'm drawing, I was trying to think of who, who said it, but it, it's, you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, somebody has not given that response yet. Okay. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a wonderful uh, bit of advice. So thank you. If anybody wants to reach out to you about either the work that you're doing or um, just wants to find some of your work or your book, uh, is there any place you want to send them other than uh, your temple email? they can just use my, they can go to the temple website, but my email's good. Um, okay. M-A-I-A-C at temple.edu. And that will also be in the show notes. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Maya Kachara, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. It was a lovely conversation and um, look forward to staying in touch with you and, and keeping up to date on all the work that you're doing. So thank well, you. I, thank you. I enjoyed it. And there you go. So like I said in the intro, not necessarily a ton of actionable steps, but more of just general awareness, right? As humans, we are kind of always looking for that that silver bullet, that one thing that I can do that will fix everything. And it's just not how the world works, is it? Right? It's always going to be a bunch of little things. And one of those can be awareness. You know, I, I think we often find ourselves just living inside of our own little bubble, and sometimes just a thought can be the thing that allows you to poke your head outside that bubble and take a look at the world from a different perspective. So a few things that I got from the show. One, if you are a new teacher, especially in a school that is lower socioeconomic status, um, just uh, it gets better and easier with time, I promise. Please stick with it. We need good teachers in our schools. And if you are an experienced teacher and there is a new teacher in your school, please be the person that reaches out to them on a regular basis just to check in. You know, you don't necessarily need to be overpowering to say, hey, I'm here for you, right? If you need anything, let me know. Two is the importance of being involved in, I'm going to say it, politics. I'm sorry, but the reality is Funding for public education is established by politicians. So get to know your local legislators, sign petitions, write letters, be involved. Just do what you can to be a voice for the voiceless. And if you don't know who your legislator is, I've actually included a link in the show notes to a site called openstates.org. They have a a nice, easy search engine. You just plug in your address and it gives you your state senator and representative for your area. So begin to establish those relationships if you don't have them already. Um, and begin to establish relationships with people in your area who are doing the work necessary to bring the change that we need to public education. So that about does it. As always, everything that you heard today can be found on our show notes page. They are at jabadoo.com slash show six. Man, I appreciate you so much. Thanks for being a listener. Thanks for sticking with me all the way to the end of this episode. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. 
If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.